Aou You fall in love <laughs> with kid games. Oh, you know, you could do like a real good like Werewolves of London thing. That's that actually might be where Werewolves of London came from. See, people think that Brace is just serenading them, but actually they don't know because this is this is your new protest tactic. Because it's like the woman in Portland who the naked lady spread in Mm -hmm. spread an eagle. Showed her pussy to Department of Homeland Security. All right. Well, you can just say it like that, too. Uh, Literally what happened, but okay. (laughs) This is Brace's new tactic. Mm -hmm. Serenading them with Wicked Game by Chris Isaac. Wicked Game. You play. It's funny. I've listened to this song maybe 30, 40 times since I started today. Um, (laughs) And I still can't get it right when I sing it. But, but yeah, that's true. You know, a lot of people, you know how they used to put guns, or excuse me, flowers in the barrels of guns mm. at Kent State and uh, related universities, probably also in the Kent area. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming that's where they were deployed. Uh, my thing is, listen, if you got haters, which I, I have basically nothing but haters. If you got haters, all you got to do, hit them with Chris Isaac, Wicked Game. Oh, you fall in love with me or something. I th- think he says with me. Anyways, uh, I always hit him with a wicked game, baby. World was on fire and no one could save me but you. Greetings, Liz. <laughs> oh, wait, that's not how we do this. Shit. Okay. Anyone ever call you Frank Zach? You ever um, get a Frank Zach? Yeah. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I don't really like it very much because that's not how well, you say my last name. Obviously not. I'm just asking if you've ever got. I've gotten Belding a lot. What? Belding. I think it's from Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh, uh, I actually watched that show when I was a kid. It's from one of those shows. There was like, like a teacher named Mr. Belding. Or whatever. Uh, yeah, I remember that. They, they were pretty groovy, X-rated. those kids. <laughs> they did. I feel like people back then wore like, you know, cabbie hats? Mm, yes. They wore like cabbie hats that were like five times too big. And yeah, like they really were too floppy. big. They were like off to the side, very funky, you know, and it's like they got a spring in their step. They Everyone walked like much longer strides. Oh, absolutely. It was always the keep on trucking kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, they're kind of like lean back, smooth yeah. move. I, I have to figure out, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be doing this while we're, while we're doing this, but I have to figure out this Memphis rapper, uh, that, that Memphis rapper, big hat. Is that going to help? No, no, white, not black, white. No, it's also showing me black people. This guy is extremely white. Fuck, I can't remember what it is. But I'm going to find it right after we end this segment. I don't have to do this while we're doing the intro. I'm going to find a song. And Young Chomsky, I need you to play a portion of it right here. This hot chick is all up on my dang a Giving me the eye while we dance and sing. I can't stop staring at her belly ring. Next thing I know, she's showing me her thingy thing. Thank you for indulging me, Liz. All right. Well, now that we've done that, I should say I'm Liz. Hello. My name is Brace. Oh, we- and we're joined, of course, by producer Young Chomsky. So I, who does that? Is that you or me who usually does that? Uh, we just, you know, we see how it goes. We wing it. We wing yeah, it we're riffing, what we- baby. We're riffing. We're riffing. Yeah, welcome. This is Trunon, and we have a big old episode for you today where we're talking, what are we talking about? We're talking about... The freaking coppers. The jackbooted thugs marching. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If this pile of gunpowder was Ruby Ridge point two, these guys would be the, the spark and the fuse. <laughs> yeah, so we got a lot to say 
um, about what's going on in Portland and what sounds like will soon be happening in uh, a city near you, America. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got our buddy Ken Klippenstein on to talk through just what the fuck DHS is, what Trump is doing, maybe what some predictions, maybe where we think this is going. And, uh, you know, we got to talk uh, Dick Cheney, my man, because uh, he's involved too. He's always mm-hmm. involved. Let's vroom on in, baby. Vroom, vroom. You know, this would be a lot easier if we could do visual gags, like we were in an elevator and the elevator opened and Ken got in and we were like, oh, what a pleasant surprise. It's Ken Klippenstein from uh, from the nation, <laughs> a DC correspondent of the nation. So good to see you. But instead, I just have to say it. So, well, oh, my elevator's coming down. The doors are opening. I wonder who's on the other side. It's Ken Klippenstein from the nation, DC correspondent. How you doing, Ken? Hey, I'm doing all right. <laughs> and we're so excited to have you here because you are the FOIA legend, of course, but also you've been doing so much work um, publishing uh, various memos and talking with sources inside various federal agencies about what exactly is going on within DHS, within Border Patrol, within ICE, and we specifically have you on because we want to talk about what the fuck is going on in Portland in the wake of these kind of um, it's like a second wave of these protest movements that are happening in Portland, kind of a continuation, but, you know, really gaining second second steam kind of um, and that have been met with pretty strange force by the federal government. Yeah, so what we have is uh, federal agents carrying out uh, what they call a supporting role for local law enforcement. Um, And the media has not been very clear about this. Certainly the administration has not been very clear. I wish there was more um, kind of scrutiny of what the legal basis for all of this is. But um, I had a a memo leaked to me from someone in Department of Homeland Security that uh, gives us a pretty good idea of uh, where these authorities are coming from. And so it turns out that in June 26th, Trump issued an executive order. I'm going to quote the order because the wording is kind of funny. It's called um, the Protecting American uh, Monuments, Memorials, and Statues <laughs> in Combating Recent Criminal Activity. <laughs> and so if you look at the text of that executive order, it says uh, that the president directed, quote, uh, that he shall provide as appropriate and consistent with applicable law personnel to assist with the protection of federal monuments, memorials, statues, or property. And everyone was sort of laughing about the monuments thing, myself included, because it's funny. But um, the really uh, critical turn of phrase there is property, because that can be interpreted very broadly. And so um, in response to that executive order, Department of Homeland Security created what's called the Protecting American Communities Task Force, or PACT for short. Mm. Another uh, pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm of... not, not hugely relieved by the choice of name there. <laughs> a little RoboCop-ish. Yeah, a little RoboCop-ish. <laughs> um, so this is DHS's response. I'll, I'll call it Department of Homeland Security DHS here on out. That's their response to Trump's executive order. And what that uh, created was uh, really the uh, you know legal or kind of the agency basis for these uh, feds to start running around uh uh, Portland and uh, yeah. arrest people in some cases, and in fact, against the wishes of municipal, uh, local, and state government. There, in, yeah. Just uh, Portland, to, just if we could back up for a second, because in case like some, I feel like our listeners probably know what's going on, but maybe they aren't aware or they're not on social media. I don't know how much the mainstream media is really covering what's going on in Portland, but um, there was like a wave of like pretty viral videos of. Uh, protesters in Portland basically being snatched by unmarked federal agents and thrown in vans, which is quite concerning for a lot of reasons. Um, And, you know, a lot of people were trying to identify, you know, who are these agents, what is going on here, and not a lot of comments um, from the feds. Is that right? Like, they weren't really like saying, oh, those are our guys, don't worry about it. Yeah, according to the videos, um, they say, you know, who are you and why am I being arrested? Because that's probably the first question you have when you're (laughs) being detained. And at least in the videos, they didn't say. And the cars were unmarked. 
according to reports, one of the guys that was arrested, they asked him if he would answer some questions. Uh, you know, he invoked his right to attorney. And at that point, they said, all right, you can go. He left. And what was strange was they never booked him. That's yeah. very unusual if they're trying to, you know, intercede in a criminal act that they want to try to stop or, you know, know about something. Um, we, you know, we were talking about this offset, but I, I wonder if that means this is part of an intelligence gathering operation as opposed to, you know, something that they necessarily want to uh, nail someone with charges for uh, in the sort of like right now. Um, mm. But uh, it's really hard to tell because um, the administration has not been forthcoming about what exactly they're doing. The media hasn't really asked the right sorts of questions. So what I was describing before was to give people a sense of the legal basis, uh, which was not just the executive order, but also Department of Homeland Security's response to and the task force that they created. And what's interesting about this task force is it takes advantage of really broad authorities uh, DHS has had since its inception, uh, you know, right after 9-11, which I think is really important context mm -hmm. to include in any coverage of this. This didn't begin with Trump, although the media yeah. might, you know, have you think that. Um, DHS was forged in the fires of the 9-11 attacks and, uh, you know, has within its institutional DNA uh, a lot of those sort of characteristics, uh, you know, really broad powers that were never rolled back, um, you know, after the attacks under Bush or Obama or now, of course, Trump. And now we're seeing an administration that's willing to take full advantage of that and really push it, push it to its limits. And so one of one of those limits here is that um, under 40 U.S. Code 1315, this was actually passed right after 9-11 under the Homeland Security Act of 2002. Great time mm -hmm. for <laughs> civil liberties. Um, when that when that was passed, that allows Department of Homeland Security, Security to deputize its officers uh, and basically make them functionally local police and able to operate mm. like that. Yeah, and that's what they've th done here. That's something that I find really strange. So, so I saw a lot of these uh, officers identified as members of BORTAC, which is like uh, CBP's SWAT team. So Border Patrol. And as far as I know, Border Patrol is not supposed to operate more than 100 miles out from the border, except in like certain special circumstances, which do not seem to include what's going on here. So that's why, like, for instance, Portland, which is not within 100 miles of a border, uh, is able to basically be invaded by Border Patrol agents. Yeah, so um, they would say that they are, uh, you know, I mentioned before the, the text of the executive order being that they have to help protect monuments, memorials, statues, or property. And in this case, um, you know, property, that can be construed very broadly. Mm. Um, and so we saw an example of this uh, earlier when William Barr, under the direction of uh, Attorney General Barr, they uh, dispatched feds to, you know, respond to protests in front of the White House, uh, you know, on the infamous mm -hmm. um, Bible uh, photo op that... Oh, that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. <laughs> Um, it, the authority that they were using then was to uh, allegedly defend uh, federal property. And now D.C., it makes a little more sense because there's federal property. You know, you can't <laughs> you can't throw a pebble without hitting federal uh, property somewhere. Um, right. But in you know, Portland, Oregon, that's a lot harder of a case to make, although they're still trying to invoke that same sort of argument saying, oh, you know, there's a federal courthouse here, maybe within a certain distance. Um, but the report suggests that um, these federal agents are moving uh, beyond the distances of these uh, federal buildings that that the authority would allow. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the the statement put out by uh, acting uh, DHS Secretary uh, Wolf about why about basically the pretext for sending these agents into Portland, and he has a list of incidents uh, starting from five twenty nine twenty twenty and going up until uh, until just July fifteenth, uh, and. Almost like, for instance, this one is from May 30th. There are several bullet points. All of them say, are preceded with, violent anarchists graffitied the building. So, violent anarchists graffitied the BPA building, graffitied the Hatfield Courthouse, graffitied the 9-11 Federal Building, uh, which I don't know why they have one of those in Portland. Uh, violent anarchists <laughs> graffitied the Gus J. Solomon Courthouse. So, almost all of these are courthouses, and all of them sound like federal buildings. And funnily enough, like, I mean, they're sending in... Heavily armed. I mean, basically, like, you know, the elite of the Border Patrol troops uh, to, to counteract what looks like graffiti incidents. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and it's very carefully uh, done and constructed. Uh, I was mentioning this to you guys before, but uh, William Barr has a history uh, throughout his career of creating justification for the use of federal force in situations that, uh, you, you know, probably the locality should handle them internally. And one of the ways that he very ingeniously has done this 
is to uh, argue that, you know, there are federal assets, uh, you know, here or there. And I mean, you can conceivably come up with federal, I mean, there are you know, federal courthouses, federal buildings all over the place. Yeah. And so basically, he's very ingeniously crafted this sort of um, legal framework for um, sending f- federal assets to different uh, lo- loca- locales in order to, you know, allegedly protect federal assets there. Um, and that's, I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Because um, to you know, have Bortac, uh, that's like, as you said, that's, that's, that's kind of like the special forces equivalent of the border yeah. patrol. They have like night vision goggles. They're often sent to like kick down doors, maybe at a, you, you know, like, uh, maybe like a, maybe like a cartel safe house where, um, the, the, you know, they're really trained to deal with situations where, uh, you're very likely to find armed resistance. So to yes. have them, you know, arresting people that, as far as the, I can tell from the videos, just seems like demonstrators. That level of federal force just seems wildly disproportionate to the alleged threat. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Barr, and I want to get into him in a little bit because he's a very important, not enough attention is paid on our attorney general, uh, surprisingly enough. But I'm wondering if, you know, you mentioned how like heavily armed these guys are, and that has been like a, like a slow creep over the past, I don't know, whatever it is, 20 years um, with DHS in its like kind of expansion. I'm wondering if you can kind of explain some of that because DHS, you know, when it was initially created, like, like so many things, you know, with 9-11, it sort of had an express purpose, although it was, it's, it's, um, become like, I think it kind of quickly became pretty muddy about what it was doing. It was like, okay, your TSA or okay, your border and, uh, but it's like kind of like all over the place a little bit, but it is one of the largest federal agencies, right? Yeah, it's actually the largest federal law enforcement agency of any of them. Uh, and that's interesting because it's also probably the youngest of all of them. Yeah. I'll give you guys some examples. Yeah, that's terrifying. So, um, they have 45,000 Border Patrol and CBP officers. That's three times the number of armed FBI agents. They have 20,000 ICE law enforcement personnel. That's the equivalent to all FBI, ATF, and DEA staff combined. So this is a huge agency massive uh and that's quite interesting because they don't have the sort of institutional history that um can you know impose discipline and uh you know put put on them a sort of cultural history to understand like what exactly you're there for and i thought you brought up a good point that it's never it's always been sort of muddled what exactly their mission is that's absolutely true i mean they've dealt you know they've they've been tasked with dealing with um everything from human trafficking to, you know, airport security to uh, uh, international commerce oversight. Like it's mm-hmm. also, I mean, it's been so many different things that this is really the perfect agency to sort of, if, if, if your goal as president is to um, f- find one that can, you know, carry out and do things that, that uh, maybe they don't, maybe they don't have an explicit uh, mission to do. Yeah. You mentioned the like culture thing. And I think that's such an interesting aspect that I hadn't, I'd never thought of before, but it's true. It's like, you know, we're not fans of the FBI in any way or the CIA, obviously. I mean, that's like what our whole podcast is about. But there is an institutional culture that, like you said, can impose some kind of at least internal discipline or sense of um, kind of like, you know, largesse among, uh, you know, the bureaucrats working in the in these departments. And like that just does not exist at Homeland Security. And yeah, it's not. It's not I even don't just know cultural. Exactly why? Well, it's not even cultural. It's also policy wise. So like yeah. um, at the FBI, you know, the, it, as you say, plenty of problems. I'm not an enthusiast yes. for any of the intelligence. <laughs> yeah, to be uh, clear, agencies. so that never gets taken out of context. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a matter of like a relative, uh, uh, you know, pr- problems. So I would yeah, say yeah, relative yeah. to the FBI and everything else, they're they're even you know they're even less disciplined. So um, in, in the case of DHS, they take their leadership from, they take their cues from the president on national security matters, and it was designed that way and intended to be that way. Whereas with the FBI, that's actually under mm. the Justice Department. And the Justice Department, at least in theory, I mean, we're all adults here, we know that <laughs> in, in reality, they're not necessarily neutral, but at least in theory, they're supposed to yes. behave neutrally or, or act that way. Uh, with DHS, there's not even that presumption. So that, uh, I think, leads to the kinds of politicization that you see when you see, for instance, ISIS, the ICE, um, un- ISIS union, Border Patrol's union, they all endorse Trump. When you look at FBI, they don't actually have a union. They have, you know, mm-hmm. they have some trade group, uh, but it's not quite the same thing. And it's certainly not as, like, partisan as, as these um, Department of Homeland Security subcomponents are. Yeah, I, 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 it's, if I'm not mistaken, like, CBP has a lot of problems with personnel, too. Like, it's like, 
it seems pretty um, criminal in nature what a lot of these guys do. Yeah, this is amazing. So from 2005 to 2012, there was one CBP agent or officer arrested every single day. That, <laughs> That's in, between those two years. insane. <laughs> How many it, is I'm, that? <laughs> it's decreased a little bit, but it's still quite bad. <laughs> that's insane. Is that's that insane. that's just that's a full turnover? <laughs> that's like they have, they've had to go through an entire turnover. Then that's crazy. And it really shows too, because the uh, morale is so low. I mean, you know, I know a lot of folks in these different agencies. You can see it sort of informally, but um, they conduct uh, polling because they want to find out what the workforce thinks. There's all sorts of questions they have about like you know readiness mm-hmm. and things like you see in the military. So they want to know you know how are people doing, and they consistently rank towards the bottom of all the federal agencies. And it's so bad that um, I, last year I think I had a report. Someone showed me a, a, a memo from the, um, I believe it was the head of Department of Homeland Security, and he was cheering that they had a 2% increase in morale among ICE, I think it was. Incredible. <laughs> and so that gives you a sense of how rock bottom the, the, the morale is there. Incredible. Yeah, and this, I mean, also it's, you know, you said it's not just culture, but it's, and, you know, with the personnel, it's like, you know, the training that these guys kind of have to go through, it's, nowhere near as rigorous as any other agency. <laughs> like, it's not, I mean, you know, it, it, you don't have to go through, like, you know, uh, rigorous, um, like, security clearances or insane, uh, you know, background checks. Like, and I'm not even, that's not even the tip of the iceberg with what, you know, kind of goes into the application to work for the FBI. But, it, it you know, it's a completely different pool that people are that that the department's pulling from it seems that's definitely true i mean there are many cases where people just have a ged i mean i was talking to my man um, <laughs> i was talking to a um i had to be vague like a i was talking to a law enforcement person in, in dhs and uh he was telling me like it's astonishing because you know they'll get hires here that you could never dream of working for any of the justice department components that you think about like I, you know dea or fbi or i don't know even at dod ncis yeah, um, the degree of education is a lot lower. Um, discipline is generally lower because there's just less training. If you just look at the training that they're required to do, even with once they get to DHS, that's a lot less as well. So I think that all of this contributes to uh, an institution that uh, you know might not be so hard to lead around by the nose uh, when you have a sort of charismatic figure who's also gives them a whole lot of money too, and assurance right. that they'll they'll keep getting more money, like uh, President Trump has. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like, you know, there's like a couple of things there where it's like, you know, okay, you, you mentioned if you wanted to have a kind of like federal, uh, like, you know, army police, basically, that having a kind of like, under trained, not very well trained, but highly militarized, massive department that is like direct that directly reports to the commander in chief would maybe be the first step. <laughs> You know, not to sound like crazy, but, you know, I I think like, I don't know, I I don't think people completely understand like how unique Department of Homeland Security is in its like history and structure. And it needs to, it should be treated very differently than the other ones, at least just even just historically. Yeah, their mission is so, you know, poorly defined and um, the, the resources and authorities they have reflect that too. So in that memo that I was telling you about that I was given to, uh, it, from, I was given to, but from someone within DHS, it, it they had a que- it has some talking points like how they're supposed to interface with media, how they answer questions. Mm-hmm. One of the questions was, what do we say if you know they they ask you about drones? Because that was a big issue in mm. Minneapolis. We had the predator yeah. drone that was conducting surveillance over there. They said to say, I'm quoting, at this time, CBP Air and Marine Operations has assets on standby to assist as needed. So that's basically saying, you know, we reserve the right to decide if we want to use a drone at any point in time. And a lot of people were surprised to hear, wait, Homeland uh, Border Patrol has drones? And it's like, yeah, they do. They also have planes. They have a whole fleet of things. And I don't think people realize the extent to which they've accrued all of these resources to become a kind of shadow defense department in in many ways. Mm, I think that's a good way to put it, too, because... Uh, I I mean, I always joke that, like, the United States' only industrial policy is Department of Defense. Like, the only thing we make and contract out to make are weapons. (laughs) And, you know, you have all that money sloshing around. You have all these contracts to fulfill. You got to, you know, send that shit somewhere. And having a kind of, like, dumping ground for highly, you know, 
you know, expansive weapons and military program seems to be quite useful. Something, something I wanted to bring up, too, is that, like, you know, it does seem sort of like a shadow DOD, which is extremely concerning on many levels, although the actual regular non-shadow DOD I also find to be extremely concerning. So, to put that in perspective. <laughs> um, but, but one sort of, like, fear that I have is, is that it does look like there is essentially, like, a highly partisan, which to be clear, most police forces are extremely right wing, but but like a highly partisan, especially in 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 where it concerns Trump, uh, essentially like shadow army being deployed that has like predator drones that has yeah like you said air and marine assets, um, and I'm a little confused about why because because they also said that the, i think uh, secretary chad wolf also said that he had uh you know intel about a possible attack on federal property in um terrorist attack i think he might have called it although i'm not exactly sure on that language about property in portland that's why dhs troops were sent out but but you know forgive me if i'm wrong but that seems like it would normally be the province of the fbi well this is where the unclear nature of dhs's uh, mission really comes in so they also have a counterterror mandate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've spoken to, for the last few articles I've done on this, current and, uh, former, uh, current and former intelligence officers, and they uh, describe how um, after, uh, you know, 9-11, their mission has really been to uh, look at, uh, you know, groups like Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula or, um, you know, any, anything that can be said to pose a threat to the continental United States. Um, and and this is the cause of a lot of consternation because uh, my understanding is that the in- intelligence officers they want to focus on w- uh, the targets now, which which they believe are far right groups and the anti government groups that have been carrying out a lot of terrorist attacks, and they can't because they're just so kind of cemented in this um, old framework of like oh we're the guys that go after Al Qaeda or ISIS or whatever it is. So um, even to the extent that it's a counter terror. Uh, agency, it, it seems like it hasn't been able to do these things effectively. And people inside will tell you that too. This is from people that are not, you know, uh, very critical of the agency in, in, in the same way that, um, you know, the general public might be. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, is DHS like, is this an intelligence agency? Is this like, just like a, a, a federal sort of catch all thing for like, you know, internal troops? Like what is DHS? Um, so it contains within it's very complicated, but it, it has one um, like sub agency inside of it that is a part of the intelligence community. It's called intelligence and analysis, and that's important because that gives it the same footing as the CIA, the you know um, defense intelligence agency, the FBI, uh-huh. all these very top tier uh, agencies that have extraordinary access to um, information about you know what 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 a lot of people in the U.S. are up to. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about ICE and uh, uh, Customs and Border Protection, which includes within it Border Patrol, is that they've tried to get similar footing. So there's good reporting uh, last year and the year before showing that they wanted to join the intelligence community, which is really amazing. I mean, there wasn't much coverage on this, but if they were to, if they were able to get into the intelligence community, they'd have access to you know top secret information uh, of the sort that you know uh, you try to have really stringent uh, vetting of people that have access to it. Cause it's understood that, you know, they could, uh, potentially do some you know, really bad things with these types of things. Uh, fortunately ice and, uh, customs and border protection, they were rebuffed for whatever reason, they didn't succeed in uh, getting included in, uh, the intelligence community. But, um, earlier this year, I learned from, uh, folks in both ICE and CBP that uh, they end up getting what's called a security agency designation, which makes it so that they no longer have to disclose not just the names of their employees, and I'm not talking about just field agents, even just office workers and things like that. That's all secret now. Um, but they don't have to publicly disclose even which office they work for or uh, you know salary information, very basic stuff that for federal employees is often something you can get under FOIA or uh, you know if you're on the street and you want to know who's arresting you, for instance. Wait, this is ICE and on. CBP or all of DHS? Both ICE and CBP. They didn't have this before either. The only agencies that have this designation um, are like 
you know, CIA, Secret Service, FBI, like really top tier kind of things. That's because that's that's what's so wild, because, you know, one of the reasons that people were freaking out so much about the Portland stuff, besides from the obvious, is that ICE agents weren't wearing any, you know, you know, if if you look at cop uniforms, uh, army uniforms, most uniforms have the person's name on it. And these agents did not have those on their uniforms. And Chad Wolf came out and said it was because of threats of doxing. Oh, I have an interesting story about that. So this designation I told you about, um, I was given some other memos that showed what the rationale for it was. In the origin of all of this, you can find my report on it, just you know, Google uh, security agency and ICE or CBP, was that someone on Twitter had been posting their, I think, salaries and like uh, addresses or something yeah, like I that. Yeah, I saw that. They, and, they released like a Dropbox. That's right. And that is the cause of them getting the same footing as the CIA and FBI and all these other things. Is because someone was so scared that some guy on Twitter, literally a Twitter, one Twitter account. It, it, See, you know, for it says people in the memo, who say Twitter doesn't matter and Twitter isn't real. <laughs> Look at this, guys. We got... <laughs> We got we got CBP custom excuse me uh, put as a uh, intelligence security agency, agency. Yeah. security <laughs> agency excuse me yeah we're winning the war on ideas fuck that's crazy that's so, like actually insane so I mean what seems to be like the picture you're painting for me here is as of an agency that is massive that is is basically being used by the president in a highly partisan way, which again is not unusual for intelligence security agencies, whatever. But but it's 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 the scope of this is really what blows my mind. And so we have these troops deployed to Portland, federal troops. I mean, I call them troops, I guess police, uh essentially temporarily kidnapping people, uh just whisking them off the street. They shot a guy, I know, I believe took out his did they kill him? I know they, they, they hit some of the rubber bullet there. Um, I, I think he had a concussion. He was very seriously injured, but I don't think he's dead. Yeah, well, still shot him. Um, and not arresting anybody, just like, just taking them off the streets for a while, which is, which is a pretty um, classic intimidation tactic. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they're talking about deploying these, these guys to other cities too, right? Yeah, that's right. So if you look at the memo I was given, um, other talking points that are shown is to, if they're asked where they're going to be deployed, say, we can't tell you because operational security. And then if you ask um, how long, like what the time frame is going to be, you're, they also cite national, they also cite um, operational security. So we can't tell you. Uh, this was, this memo was, was released on uh, July 1st. And they were instructed to say, we believe this will only last through uh, the 4th of July, you know, just for hmm. that, just for that day. And of course it's ongoing and they never, they never ended it. So, you know, much like the agency itself, uh, this task force uh, and, and the uh, federal agents they're, you know, deploying to God knows how many cities is completely open-ended and, and poorly defined and vague in itself. That, yeah, that's what's so crazy to me is that we do have basically the indefinite deployment of federal officers doing whatever the fuck they want with basically no oversight. You can't even know their fucking names. Um, and, and it's, 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 this is like the Jade held helm stuff come true, right? Like they really are like they're an unmarked. I mean, if you look at it for some reason, it is supremely creepy to see these guys in military fatigues, dragging some guy who's just walking home from a protest into a fucking unmarked, just like minivan that, that, You'd see it Whole Foods parking lot or whatever uh, in the middle of the street without saying a word. It's incredible. Uh, and people, I think some people are sort of waking up to see what this is. But like, this is the stuff that Alex Jones warned you about. They're actually doing it. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people just don't know how to react because like, there's not much we can do. Like, like you said, the, the local politicians in Portland don't want them there. Um, but the police unions and the police, the, I guess the local police departments, a lot of these cities are inviting them in too. like, they they say they're willing to work with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the reception from local police has been very warm, um, and in stark contrast to that, if like every other public, uh, (laughs) official, I mean, you have senators, you have Nancy Pelosi, for God's sake, going on Twitter and, uh, sounding like Louise Mensch about all this. And she is not (laughs) someone who ever issues you know very strong uh statements about hardly anything let me let me try to find what her statement was it was pretty astonishing she said uh, quote uh, dhs actions in portland undermine its mission trump and his stormtroopers must be stopped and his it's kind of a nice wow. yeah really surprising to hear her say that uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of a nice segue because um 
right now the House is right in the middle of um, deciding what kinds of budgetary appropriations they're going to do. And um, like minutes before we went uh, to record this, uh, Ryan Grimm had a story out saying that the C Congressional Progressive Caucus is pushing for uh, you know a new funding bill that doesn't include funding for DHS. But at that same time, Pelosi, um, uh, it sounds like, and the other uh, Democratic House leaders uh, want to go ahead with the funding uh, that they already had in place. I mean, these people are so spineless. I, I, it's so frustrating to see, like, you know, she, Pelosi puts that shit on Twitter to, like, rile up whatever and make this, like, big thing, like, look, the Democrats were doing something, blah, blah, blah. But they're just signing these bills away to DHS, and they have been for the past, you know, since since its fucking inception. You know, they've, they've been just giving them more and more money every year. There's been absolutely no no concerted pushback ever. But yeah, I'm that's exactly right. Of. I mean, in situations like this, the president has enormous power to tell them what to do. But the power that uh, the you know branch that's supposed to be co-equal Congress has is the power of the purse string, so they can defund. And that in itself, you know, maybe you can't defund all of DHS, but that would send a pretty clear message to them, like you know, you better um, stop just being this like uh, uh, highly partisan outfit, or we're going to keep cutting things. Uh, and the thing is, um, it's not like we tried it and it didn't work. It's more like nothing has been tried. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you just mentioned something that I kind of want to pinpoint. You said that uh, supposedly equal branches, which, you know, part of what is kind of like, you know, we mentioned William Barr, you know, the executive branch, the fact that DHS basically just reports to the commander in chief slash president, which are now sort of one in the same, which we'll get into. But um you know, the kind of like deep backdrop of this is something that we've mentioned on the show before. Um, if you've listened to our episodes on 9-11, which is something called the unitary executive theory, which our man, William Barr, is actually, um, I think you could go so far as to say one of the philosophers of, legal philosophers of. And, you know, this is usually mentioned um, in conjunction with Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, uh, John Yoo, of course, who I think is still making the cable news rounds, which... Yeah, in fact, I, I Fox News was dragging Andy NGO and fucking John Yoo out the other night to talk about how everything that the DHS is doing in Portland, totally legal, extremely sick, no problem. And I thought it was a little fucking on the nose to have John Yoo, the fucking torture memos guy who is like the 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 Alfred Rosenberg of the fucking Bush administration, or one of many Alfred Rosenbergs of the Bush administration, um, to talk about this. It's incredible to me. Well, that's what's so funny, is that John Yu is right. And that's like kind of a like an important point, is that, you know, this stuff is actually all legal, and part of the reason why it's legal, and we can kind of, it's sort of, see if I can explain this right. There's, but like, it's legal because they've created laws making it so, right? And that starts, um, I mean, there's an important kind of longer history here that actually goes all the way back to Iran-Contra because everything, of course, goes back to Iran-Contra. But basically, there's like a split there where the Reagan administration is wanting to do all of this stuff, you know, fund the Contras, right? And not only that, but then they're also trying to deregulate massive industries, uh, domestically and congress like really put its foot down and they said no 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 we're congress we're not going to let you do that and this was like um you know this was a big sticking point and basically like you know during the iran contra hearings um, one of the kind of like minority reports of the iran contra hearing uh, kind of starts to spell out what would it would be what would basically become a kind of more unitary executive theory that we see develop mostly through the HW and then W. Bush and Obama years and now the Trump years. But basically the idea is that actually the president has uh, all power because the executive has all power. And if like basically if the executive has control over something, then it has exclusive control over something, which means that Congress doesn't have any role in limiting the executive's control over it which is so there's like kind of like two steps um that they're kind of doing there in terms of legal justification but part of it is saying that 
it, it's really blurring the line between commander in chief and the executive. And this became really crucial in the years, um, you know, right after 9-11, when most of these, including the Patriot Act and a lot of the torture memos and the um, warrantless surveillance program and all these legal justifications are getting, you know, basically milled out by the Bush administration, although it's unclear exactly how quickly they were able to write those. Methinks they had some of them, uh, you know, squared away. Ready to rock. They, yeah, ready ready <laughs> to fucking rock for sure. They fell um, out of the damn planes like a fully intact passport. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, that basically, you know, because he's the commander in chief and you're in this state of national security, that there are no laws that can um, like in any way limit the power of the commander in chief because all national security uh, concerns are under his purview, if that makes sense. And that becomes a very dangerous situation as we're seeing, not just, you know, as we saw explicitly with the war on terror and, you know, I won't even get into the way the Obama administration expanded this stuff. But now we're seeing a direct, you know, we're seeing this direct with the Trump admin and the expansion of DHS, where they're literally using this, these same, you know, these legal justifications for deploying uh, troops to cities. Yeah, it's really extraordinary the role that Barr has played. Um, He's really doing, he's playing a song he's practiced his entire life. Um, And I'll give you a couple examples that sort of illustrate that. So back in 1989, um, and this was pointed out, I should say, by Ryan Goodman and Daniel uh, Shulkin of Just Security. Uh, They had a really great uh, article on on his sort of legal history. So um, back in 1989, uh, the Virgin Islands suffered a really bad hurricane. And so they had to go in. And the question was, how do we send federal troops in to keep um, to prevent looting and uh, things of that nature that there is always their transcendent concern? Um, How how do we do that without declaring martial law? Because going all the way to martial law, that's that looks bad. So um, Barr came up with a pretty ingenious um, interpretation of, of some really old laws that had been, some really old statutes that had been on the books. And um, basically, he was able to um, use the statute that said that um, to keep federal functions going and courts open, you can send federal troops in to, to do kind of local stuff, regardless of the support or objection of um, the local authorities. And so on that basis, uh, he was able to use very arcane uh, sort of legal procedures to, to, to end up sending federal troops there. That was just uh, one example. But what was so striking about that is that um, when he deployed, when, when, when Barr you know, signed off on the deployment of feds here in uh, Washington and D.C., um, he also uh, used the justification that they're there to prevent and, and prevent violence against the courts and uh, preserve the court's ability to continue functioning. So it's almost uncanny how similar it was. Uh, to this case of the Virgin Islands. And there's yet another example. Um, when he was working for George H.W. Bush uh, during the um, Desert Storm um, invasion, uh, Bush had deployed 500,000 troops to Saudi Arabia. And so he said, okay, do I need congressional authorization on this? Barr essentially said to him, no, I don't think that you do. Uh, and he said, um, you know, so long as you, the commander in chief, believe that um, you need to go in there, then I think that uh, that is justification enough. And so, uh, again, provides a very, you know, complex legal justification for um, circumventing really what is the only protection we have against a president running roughshod on our foreign policy, which is uh, congressional approval. And so um, the argument he made, essentially, it's kind of interesting. He said that um, if you need to do first strike in order to protect your army in the field, thinking that, you know, your army will get attacked first, then as long as you're in that state of mind that you're protecting your army, then then you're within your rights as commander of chief uh, to invade. Exactly. So wait, like you could you could put a bunch of troops on like the the Iranian border or something, and then uh, because you need to protect them from something some foreign force, you could invade Iran. That's essentially what Barr said. Now this is where I'm skeptical of the law generally because it's so uh, the law has a tendency to you know fill the shape of the container that that is in front of it. That is the sort of political situation that is created. So. In the case of Desert Storm, I think there was probably a lot of power centers within the United States and internationally that, you know, wanted Saddam to go and get uh, beat up because yeah. of what he had done in Kuwait. So this creates a sort of opening, and then you need a legal pretext for it. You know, you've got to pretend like you're um, – but, you know, that can't be completely written off. Like, so this person is very talented at being able to twist these things in such a way that, that he can provide that legal justification. And so 
for that reason, uh, Liz, what you were saying before, comparing him to Cheney, I think that's a really good comparison. If um, Trump is Bush, then uh, I think a really good comparison between um, Barr and, and, and Cheney can be, can be made because they provide this sort of, um, uh, how do you say, uh, it, sort of lubricant to keep all these complicated, um, you know, pistons of state moving so that they can, someone like Trump can accomplish what he very, <laughs> very indelicately, you know, uh, puts in rhetoric, but doesn't really know how to manipulate the system to be able to bring about. One thing I, I want to um, remark on that, that you mentioned, and then your echo, I suppose, this blurring of commander in chief and president is like crucial for these legal justifications. And that's exactly what Barr was sort of laying the groundwork for with Desert Storm is, you know, his memo on Desert Storm, it sounds like. But what's also part of that is saying that, you know, basically, like for 200 years, the role of Congress and the legislature has been to write laws. And that is just no longer the case because of these legal moves that were made with the groundwork being laid since Reagan, but then really, you know, they got their moment right after 9-11 in the Bush administration. And so suddenly you have the executive writing its own legal justifications for national security laws. And basically, this is what we can do because of national security issues. And so, like, you have a case where, like, we'll talk about, you know, in the case with Portland, is that you've if, you, if these protesters wanted some legal recourse against the federal government, there isn't, a, like, Congress can't pass a law that says, no, we don't torture. Because the, they, the executive says, no, we do. And if you want to contest that, you've got to take us to court. And the courts have to then decide whether or not what we're torturing people over is an issue of national security. And if it's an issue of national security, then it's the purview of the commander-in-chief, which Congress cannot limit. And that's the legal move that's happening here. And it's really fucking dangerous. Like, I, I don't know, like, how I, I'm trying to be really passionate about this for people to understand, because there's a direct line between this and what we're seeing in Portland. And this idea, like, Congress just needs to make laws, Congress needs to assert itself. It's like, that's part of it. But it also, like, because of this sort of new legal regime that we live under and we have been living under, which we can call the unitary executive or you could call authoritarian, whatever, it's nearly impossible. It's nearly impossible. Yeah, I, I think this what's so incredible is that, like, this seems to be, like, one of the things that people have been warning against for decades, right? Like, stuff like this is going to start to happen. And now it is happening and and the response to it has been in some quarters, you know, people have been pretty loud about it and a lot of other quarters pretty muted. Um, and my worry is like, OK, it seems like Portland is just a testing ground for this kind of stuff. And this is going to sort of roll on further. And these tensions between these local municipal and state governments and between the federal government are going to probably rise. I mean, I think Lori Lightfoot released a statement earlier today saying that she wouldn't allow uh, federal troops or whatever in, in Chicago, which is, by the way, they already have allowed them in. I guess just not these new they, CBP said it was sending 150 agents in this weekend. Not even anything to do with violent anarchists, but to just promote law and order because there's been so many shootings, which not really sure why CBP is really has to deal with that. But um, it just seems like this is going to expand and that every time there's a protest somewhere that is I mean, it doesn't even have to be near a federal building. They can really send someone out. So I, I am just waiting for them to announce that they're sending them out to Oakland or L.A. or any of these other cities. Um, you know, whether it's to, for optics, for Trump's, you know, base, or whether it really is to, to punish Democrat mayors or to, to just intimidate protesters. I don't know, for any number of reasons or all those reasons. Uh, it, it just, it's astounding to me because it is like, this really like uh, blue pilled martial law, like the justifications for this stuff, I, I guess, don't even really need to make sense. They can just, they can just, it's legal and they can just do it. Yeah, you see an administration like this. I think somebody like Trump um, is very good at taking all the air out of the room and getting all the cameras to look at him and to not look at people like Barr, people like John Bolton, um, people mm -hmm. like you know these these uh, these sort of virtuosos of of, of manipulating the. Um, the political machinery to, to effectuate something that it often is pretty unpopular <laughs> with the population. That's not easy to do. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, 
you, you know, uh, so someone like Trump may well just want this to be uh, an optics thing. I mean, he has rhetorically said for years now, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do something about these uh, liberal cities that aren't doing a thing about the these, you know, these liberal sanctuary cities. He's threatened that for years now. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, just because this is a fireworks show for the base to, you know, shore up his election, that Barr doesn't have his own designs that he's been working on for mm-hmm. decades and decades. Um, you know, both of those things can be true. So um, unfortunately, there's a kind of uh, there's al- there's always been a kind of dualist attitude like, um, oh, does Trump know what he's doing or does he not? It's not no administration yeah. is monolithic like that, though. Uh, right, there are right, different right. factions of every administration, um, you know, from Bush to Trump to any, you know, Cowboys and, so, and Yankees. Yeah. Right. And so their <laughs> interests can overlap sometimes in what they're in what they're pursuing. It may not even matter that Trump knows um, w- what he's doing if he's laying this sort of uh, legal framework for something that Barr's wanted to do for decades. Where could we see this go? Like, what could the next next steps of this kind of stuff be? It really depends on what Congress does now. Um, I would not, you know, I'm generally <laughs> quite pessimistic about uh, you know, elected officials and things, but this is really going to be a debate right now. My, I know mm-hmm. staffers um, that work on this kind of stuff, and um, you know, Ryan Grimm's uh, report earlier today suggests this as well. That it's not at all clear yet what uh, you know Pelosi's and the Dem leadership is in a tight spot because people are really pissed off about this. Um, extremely unpopular. I got so many emails from people saying, um, you know, I had a story recently about a bill AOC is going to introduce. Um, to require that you know all federal agents uh, have identification, and I got a flood of e- emails from uh, actually a lot of conservatives saying, "God, I never thought I would say this, but I actually agree with AOC on this issue um, because this <laughs> does this does kind of like I mean you know it's the feds stomping around in your yeah. backyard like this should yeah, be this something that's very feds. unpopular, right? Exactly, which is why they don't want any of it on television. By the way, like any military incursion domestically is historically very unpopular um i mean think about kent state right like there's a reason why this also is not getting a lot of media coverage i would say i agree yeah i mean um so pelosi's in a very tight spot it depends on how much the congressional progressive caucus is able to assert itself and to what extent the i think the public sort of um, gets involved in this and sees this as the pressure point as opposed to, you know, um, retweeting Pelosi's um, statement or, you know, whatever kind of right, right, other right. thing they put in front of you or just vote, just wait until November and vote. No, at that point, it's too late because yes. you've already given them this sack of cash that they're going to use to do what we know that they've been doing with it. Um, the re- I mean, this is the pressure point is their funding. And so a lot yeah. depends on what happens in the next two or three weeks, I think. Well, you brought something up there with voting is, is, I mean, this could potentially be used um, by Trump to affect the outcome of the election. Yeah, I think so. Um, And I think that's what people should be looking at. Um, Because when he talks about, I mean, he is sending them so far to blue states that, uh, you know, by no means swing states, but there's no reason he couldn't. I mean, if he wanted to send these... It's unclear what the motives are, as always, because, you know, profound lack of um, openness on the part of the administration. But, um, I mean, this could be a testing kind of thing where he's dipping his toe in the water and seeing, okay, if I put this in deep blue states, that'll tell me how far I can go. (laughs) Because if I want to put this in a swing state or in a red state, it's going to be way easier because the governor might not oppose it. You know, the state legislature might not oppose it. So this is going to be the toughest sort of scenario for him. Well, and not even just the election, but like, you know, we're on the precipice of like an economic cliff, basically, with the, you know, basically Republicans saying no, no more extension of you know, of unemployment, although, you know, I'll believe that when I see it, because I still think it's an election year. But, you know, no stimulus, no extension, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Evictions are, are eviction moratoriums are ending in a lot of places. And you've got Three million, you know, or what was it last week? One and a half million new unemployment claims, like more and more jobs are being lost. And you've got a pandemic that they're predicting is going to have a massive, horrifying resurgence in the fall. Like what that does for a social fabric and social unrest is completely unpredictable. Yeah, I think that's why Trump is experimenting with what he can do. Uh, with the Defense Department in terms of um, Mm. deploying not just the um, National Guard, you know, which itself is a lot of part-time people who are maybe teachers Mm. on the side. Yeah, don't get me started on my rants on the National Guard. I could could beat the shit out of anybody (laughs) in the National Guard, no fucking question. That is not a threat. 
I just could do it. <laughs> and to see him, I mean, he wanted Fucking to try to deploy goobers. the active duty military. That's like much more serious than um, the yeah. National Guard. I mean, these guys are. Yeah, that did to, not play well in DC. That did not play well. They're trained to, these guys are trained to kill overseas. I mean, that's their yeah. job, yeah. you know? Um, they don't know how to do crowd control. I mean, if you thought the uh, National Guard was bad, you can't imagine what the difference would be. So but when they do know to, how to do crowd control. It's just a very different kind oh that is deployed yeah. overseas. <laughs> Blackwater famously showed us how to do it uh, yeah. in a certain square in, a, in Baghdad. So I wonder if he's just cycling through his options here, because uh, I don't know. I have a funny feeling that the uh, payroll tax cut is not going to cut it in terms of helping people. Right. So maybe there's, I, I would imagine there's some anticipation of, of increased unrest. And so, uh, you know, if, if sending out the active duty isn't going to work, I mean, his attempts to, you know, activate the DOD were really extraordinary to have the joint chiefs of staff, um, general Milley apologize for the church photo op and to have. Yeah, Mattis- that was, w- that was wild. That's like pretty unheard of. Right. Totally unprecedented. I mean, I'm not saying he's some great, you know, moral exemplar for doing yeah, it. Yeah, 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 please. But like, yeah, no uh, you know, or or Mattis for excoriating him in the Atlantic of all places. That was kind of funny. Um, yeah. Uh, but like, for these guys do not cross swords with, you know, the current sitting leadership. I mean, they're highly political. As, you know, as a senior intelligence official in DOD told me, these guys are essentially... Um, you know, in, internally they think as politicians, they don't behave that way, but they yeah. think about it. And so they don't want to come off as though they're crossing, um, uh, elected leadership. So for them to say these things, that's, that's like, it might not seem like much to us, but in that, in that world, that is like very, very unusual. So yeah, it's a bit worrying too to see that kind of split, you know? Yeah. It almost seems like the DOD told the, um, Pentagon said, you know, no, we're not going to go the full extent. And then he just pivoted and said, all right, well, DHS, what can you do for me? <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's that's the thing that I'm talking about with this whole thing is, or that I'm worried about with this whole thing because if because you know I, I, there is a well, there are several deep states, uh, but you know there are large factions within the intelligence community, which that term I fucking hate, but for lack of a better word, um, that hate Trump, right? Like there are mm. large parts of the CIA, FBI, etc., that very much dislike Trump, and so what it seems to me like he has is he has an ultra loyal ultra funded ultra bloated basically like private essentially army for his executive uh ready to go that will not cross him that will not have like chad wolf a guy you think listen listeners you think a guy named chad wolf even if he wasn't dhs secretary any guy named chad wolf in america is not going to come out and say i'm not going to do this what trump tells me to do it's a classic trump guy name the virgin um, the virgin constitution versus the chad dhs secretary yeah exactly um but but that's that's what's insane to me is that, is that you have this like partisan force for him and 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 you know god forbid you will not hear me say one kind word about any federal agency including the fda who by the way fda do have a fucking swat team um as do i think the uh education uh bureau does too um but but it it is it's frightening because this basically like these are his 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 this is his sa you know if we're making that kind of analogy here like these are his like they're his his shock troops well and also then you've got suddenly a war between him and dod and like i don't know who i mean between the executive and the pentagon like that's a very, very, uh, that's a very dangerous situation that no one should want or encourage happening. <laughs> like that kind of split and uh, perhaps military officers, Pentagon officials moving in to secure order <laughs> and peace. I'm just saying that is not a situation anyone wants. We like to talk about various uh, possibilities on this podcast. <laughs> not predictions. just Not part of it, it, You know, it is a possibility. I mean, I think Trump will probably lose the election in November, although. And the who Senate, knows? yeah. But who knows yeah, what happens? It does not look good for him. Um, but, but, I mean, if he does somehow eke out a win, I will be very curious to see how these sort of relationships end up. Thank you so much for joining us. That was fantastic. Good to talk to you guys.
um, always yeah. happy to depress people, which feels like it's increasingly my job. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's like a, this is like a little bit of a black pill episode, but it's an important yeah. one as we enter well, phase four. You know how everyone always talks about like, oh, Ruby Ridge, oh, Waco, and there's all these things that happened a million years in the past, and they're making TV shows about it now, whatever. Well, the one thing is, at least we'll have fresh material for the Ruby Ridge set. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> when we're locked in uh, under martial law, like legal martial law, we'll have brand new Netflix shows that are that are just dramatizing our reality right before yeah. our very eyes. <laughs> um. All right. Well, that was uh, that was Ken with us, and we will see you. We'll see you next time. I hope, hopefully, that doesn't have to be a next time, but unfortunately, there probably will be. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you later, Ken. Bye, guys. Hey guys, so most of our listeners might already be aware, but earlier this week, a dear friend, colleague, and comrade, Michael Brooks, passed away. Michael was such an important force for good in this world, a relentless voice for justice, and we are all just devastated um, at the prospect of having to continue all of this without him. There are very few prominent left voices so thoroughly committed to a true internationalist politics, so passionate about exposing the American empire's heinous crimes and amplifying struggle of people fighting to lift the boot. We've just lost one of the loudest. Michael, in addition to this indomitable passion for justice, was also just so incredibly funny. You know, his ability to use comedy to diffuse political and social tensions. This, you know, this stems from a genuine, a true genuine love of people and the world, even or especially even in the face of unrelenting brutality. This love requires a fierce commitment and purpose and a tenderness and spirit. All of which is to say that this is what makes his passing almost too much to bear. Michael was a sharp wit, an invaluable political voice, and someone who was never tired, never ever ever tired of wrestling with the big ideas, even when they made people uncomfortable, himself included. He was always pushing himself to think harder and better and deeper. And I'd ask that in addition to us all committing to take on that mantle from him, that in the spirit of Michael, we all vow to be a bit more kind and a bit more generous with one another. With all that being said, here's Michael in his own words. A very, very extraordinary historical figure. We've talked about him a bit before on the show. Uh, Amit Clara Cabral, um, who was this extraordinary revolutionary uh, from Cape Verde. uh, And one of his concepts, and I actually mentioned this concept in Against the Web, uh, Cosmopolitan Answer to New Right, is this idea that which is a, it's a really brilliant nuance because he says the colonial imperialist enterprise has taken Africa out of history. In other words, they weren't in history creation anymore because they were subjugated by European colonial uh, and imperialism. And his point, though, is that, that the liberation struggle is a return to history making, and you can build a genuinely global fabric that, as an example, can be local, national, and international simultaneously. And this, these ideas from Cabral are so distinct from that. And he had even brilliant ways of relating that as an agronomist and understanding ecology and understanding plants. Um, and he also had this flam- famous phrase, claim no easy victories, right. which... You know, in a time when, again, it's like, guys, 
there are these extraordinary movements happening. Power at the base is consolidating. It's all going in the wrong direction. And I just love that idea from Cabral of like, don't claim the easy victory. Mm-hmm. Fight for those real actual things. It's much harder. It's the antithesis of the toxic payoff society. Um, but it's deep and it's real and extraordinary leaders like this speak to that. Mm-hmm. Let's just reflect on that. There's a really broad legacy here. Of course, he was, you know, like Sankara, assassinated by a comrade, uh, assassinated by a friend. Another great theft from all of our collective history to have this extraordinary human taken from us. But claim no easy victories. Claim no easy victories. Mm-hmm. Reflect on that. Take that in. In all levels. Um, that's part of the, the broad struggle we all have to try to be in the process of working on ourselves and, and, and thinking about the big, real challenges that we are deeply in. We are, I mean, I don't, someone said uh, I was like a Debbie Downer. I, I don't think so. Um, I do think there's enormous possibility. Um, and even when I'm critiquing and prodding and trying to think and pointing out things that, again, I'm sorry, if I think something is, you know, stupid or whatever, I'm going to say it. But of course, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of energy and the material conditions are in place. Those are real things. Of course, there's grounds for certain has to be a grounded optimism and it can't be based on claiming an easy victory.